Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we had the opportunity to talk to Dr. David Urbach. Dr. Urbach is a MIS and bariatric surgeon and health services researcher at Women's College Hospital in Toronto, Ontario. We had a really wide-ranging discussion with him, talking about everything from checklists to the impact of the word cancer on patient decision-making to wait times in Canada and how we might address these wait times in the face of COVID, as well as medical devices in surgery. Take a look at our show notes for links to the papers, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Well, first, uh, Dr. Beck, thank you very, very much for joining us on Cold Still. We, we really appreciate it. In in sort of thinking about you in a in a more broad context, I think you're you're probably Canada's best example of a true contemporary, maybe tri- triple threat, so to speak. You know, you're a heavyweight clearly in research. You're a really busy administrator, and of course, a really busy clinician. So, again, we know how busy you are, and we can't thank you enough uh, for coming on. I guess our first question out of the gate is, I think most of the country, uh, quite frankly, knows you uh, quite well, but maybe not personally. So we were curious what your pathway was in terms of moving into medicine, eventually surgery, and then, of course, your subspecialty. Well, thanks, Chad, for that very, very flattering uh, introduction. Um, you know, it's it's really interesting to think about uh, our our history and our past and our pathway into medicine, and you really wonder how much of this was what you were thinking at the time, given you know what I've come to learn about this job over the years. Um, but I do know I uh, I grew up in a medical family, like my dad uh, was in was an obstetrician, and you know I'd hear him on the phone. Uh, in the evenings, uh, you know, having these like serious conversations with his residents and asking a couple of questions. And he'd say things like, you know, oh, is, is she shocky? Should, do I need to come in? Um, and, uh, you know, not, not really knowing what all, all that meant, but um, it, it, it did seem very exciting. And, uh, you know, I think that and uh, what I, what I saw on TV, the, the whole, uh, a career as a doctor just seemed like a really, exciting and interesting way to be involved in helping people. Um, and I was also, you know, I, I viewed myself as sort of a scientific person. I liked science and in, in school and biology, and it just seemed like a great way to pull all these things together. Um, and, uh, and surgery as well. It, it, you know, as a young person, I thought like the greatest thing in the world would be to be up all night in hospital wearing scrubs and um, and just doing heroic things to to save people, um, you know. I'm, over over time, I guess you know priorities shift a little bit, and uh, uh, you know I I can say uh, I I really love taking call and I uh, and and I love the acute side of the work that we do, but um, you know I've definitely mellowed with age and uh, <laughs> not I don't uh, I don't I don't live for the all nighters uh, at this point in my life. I, I will say. It's funny that you say that you grew up listening to your father talk on the phone. I remember distinctly as a young kid hearing my dad at the table calmly pick up the phone and say, Yeah, oh, is they are they passing gas? What's the urine output? And as if as if that was normal dinner conversation. 
Would you say then it was your dad who was the most influential person and kind of uh, pushing you towards your career? Or who would you say was the most influential person along the way? You know, I, I, I think when I look back on it, I'd probably say it was him. Um, in, and I, I don't know that that's true, but um, I, can't, I can't imagine because, you know, for him, his career was so, uh, was so crucial for him. Like, that's, that's what he was. He was a doctor. He actually had a lab. He, had a, he was funded by the MRC doing research in immunology, uh, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, so he was like a real clinician scientist. And, um, you know, it, it was a career he com- completely loved and he thought that was the most noble and um, uh, important thing that, that a person could do. So I'm sure that was hugely influential on me. Dave, we wanted to dive into uh, a few of your your, your uh, publications. And, you know, I, I try not to use the word heavyweight uh, often, but I really did mean that uh, in introducing you. You know, you really are one of our super heavyweights maybe even uh, in, in Canada for sure. Um, it's impressive. You have multiple New England Journal uh, of Medicine publications, of course. Well, one of the favorite papers that we have around here, and I think you know this, having uh, kindly come out to Calgary and give grand rounds uh, a couple of years ago, was was your, I wouldn't say retort or response, but your, your commentary and your work on, on surgical checklists and, and briefings. I, I was wondering if you could just sort of summarize that publication for maybe those few folks who haven't read it and what your take on it was, uh, of course. Yeah, so what we did is we wanted to analyze what happened after the introduction of surgical safety checklists in Ontario. And what really prompted this was uh, all this literature that was emerging that safety checklists were just incredibly, like fantastically effective, uh, more effective than any intervention uh, that we'd ever seen in uh, perioperative care uh, at accomplishing things like uh, reducing postoperative complications and reducing operative mortality. Um, and if you actually look at the numbers, they're phenomenal. Like yeah, use of a checklist compared with not using a checklist cuts the risk of death in half. Exactly. Um, so, you know, and Carl Sagan used to say, and I, we use this in one of our um, commentaries, that uh, extraordinary claims uh, really require extraordinary evidence. And, you know, all the evidence, when you went back and looked at it, was not uh, what we would expect for rigorous, high-quality uh, evidence to support um, clinical interventions. Uh, the, these were really before and after studies. So there were no clinical trials or well-designed controlled studies. Um, so study designs that we would ordinarily consider highly biased designs, and we would normally look very um, you know, suspiciously at the conclusions from these types of studies, uh, really led to an intervention that was actually adopted overnight. Uh, if you looked at the timeline when safety checklists initially were endorsed by the World Health Organization and uh, the NHS in England and eventually uh, throughout the rest of the world, this is something that within months became really much uh, much a standard of care in, in hospitals. And we took a step back and said, like, look at, um, once they were introduced, did it achieve what everyone expected it would achieve? So if, if on all these early studies it reduced the risk of death uh, by 50% and if it reduced complications by a similar amount, does that happen when you actually introduce it at a population level. And the advantage of doing a population study, like we're able to do in a lot of our um, uh, jurisdictions in Canada, because we have these population-based uh, databases, 
is you don't have to worry about selection bias. If you if you look at the entire population before, the entire population after, um, you don't really have to worry that, oh, well, maybe checklists are only being used or used completely in certain populations, and that may make it seem like checklists are really effective, but it might really be some sort of selection bias that's operating. So what we were able to do was use the entire population data set. And essentially what we found is that at the population level, uh, nothing much really happened. Uh, so all these anticipated benefits that we would have expected based on all these other small before and after studies didn't happen when you actually studied this uh, uh, at a population level. And, and that has actually been borne out in some other studies that, that have been done across large geographic regions, uh, like, um, you know, entire states in the United States, uh, where it's been very difficult to show the types of benefits that were demonstrated uh, in in the early small studies. You know, interestingly, uh, our study was largely uh, criticized or, or interpreted to show that the reason the checklists weren't as effective as they should have been was because they just weren't done properly in Ontario. Like that was the, that was the perspective that, yeah. you know, we, we didn't invest in a proper rollout. We didn't really educate people and to how to properly do a checklist. So they were, they weren't, um, you know, doing it full, you know, with their full, um, yeah, exactly. Con but, uh, you know, and, never was there sort of this consideration that, well, maybe it just isn't quite as good for these clinical benefits as people think. Um, you know, there, there was always this assumption that, no, no, the, they must have this effect on operative mortality and complications. Um, you know, I, I just, I do want to say, because this, this comes up quite often, that I'm not a checklist nihilist. Like, I, I do believe that they actually have enormous value to us. And I enjoy doing safety checklists with teams that I'm sure a lot of us do. Um, but, you know, I think the benefits are very different from what uh, what they were purported to be initially. And I, I, I really don't believe that they save lives, but I do believe that they bring teams together, that they engage nurses, they force us to uh, know each other's names and, um, you know, really engage as, uh, as people. And, and I think they have enormous benefit um, you know, for for surgeons as they, um, you know, d d exercise micro leadership in operating rooms and are able to really formalize the way that they bring teams together. So, I I like checklists. I just uh, I'm very skeptical about some of the claims that have been made about them. Why do you think those those initial publications and obviously, as you pointed out, the incredibly sub uh, rapid subsequent uptake? Um, uh, were like they were. Like, why did they show such such massive clinical benefits? Right. So, I mean, those are two great questions, and I I have my own personal answers for both. So, mm -hmm. the first, I think, the reason why they showed such huge clinical benefit is, I think, the reason why so many uh, of our studies of surgical uh, procedures um, show really big clinical benefit. Um, and I think the answer for almost every intervention that seems too good to be true is, um, you know why is selection bias causing this effect? Yeah. And to me, like selection, so, and non-surgeons and lay people really don't get the, um, the whole concept of how selection profoundly influences uh, the types of patients that we look after and what we do for them and what happens to them. So, and what, what I mean by how selection bias would have influenced these studies, because 
at the Toronto General Hospital, we were actually a participant as one of the eight hospitals in the initial um, World Health Organization uh, New England Journal and publication that really mm. got the ball ro- rolling. I didn't and, know that. Wow. Yeah. So we, yeah, I compl- I was one of the surgeons. We completed the yellow form. And the way it worked is that they, they did this run-in period where they looked at all the operations over a four-month period or whatever it was, four or three months, and looked at the outcomes of all those patients. And then they had a bit of a washout and then we introduced a checklist. And then we looked at the outcomes of check- patients who had this checklist procedure done. Uh, so in the after period, uh, we had to fill out a little questionnaire about whether the checklist was done or not and just answer some basic questions. And those patients were then collected and became the after group. And, and the difference is the before group included everybody, um, but the after group only included specific patients that we had sort of checked off this sheet and enrolled and said we'd done this uh, safety checklist. So the types of patients who may not have made it in that after period, and we, we've never really studied this very well, but I, I have to assume is that, uh, you know, a lot of emergencies, a lot of reoperations, mm-hmm. like middle of the night things, and, uh, you know, ruptured annuals, you, you know, yeah, you exactly. name it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to me, whenever I look at the results of studies, I always think my first impression is, uh, is why is it that I cannot explain this by selection bias? And, Almost always, um, you can find how selection bias is likely to play a big role, and um, and it's it's a it's a very big problem in a lot of our research. So, so the answer to your first question, I believe, is um, uh, I think selection bias was a was a big factor. Uh, you know, the the answer to the next question of like why was it popularized so quickly? Um, I think uh, there's a number of factors, but. One is, I, I think we're primed. We were primed for these types of interventions. And the story was was a, a great story. Like, here's this intervention. It can be applied internationally. It costs nothing. Uh, it's simple. And it's, uh, on on the, if you took it at face value, it, it's extraordinarily effective. Um, and who's the proponent? Uh, you know, Atul Gawande, one of the most, well-known um, and persuasive and uh, most thoughtful uh, surgeon leaders at the time uh, who had written some books, who, um, you know, was very, very well-known for uh, his journalism in the New Yorker uh, and is uh, an incredibly uh, influential, persuasive and uh, and smart guy. So I think the, the constellation of all these things really made it just irresistible. And, um, and, and that's why what we saw was this uptake like nothing I've ever seen uh, with respect to changing practice overnight. I'm curious whether you, when you read papers, is that the first thing that you think is, uh, is there selection bias that could explain this? Because in, in, uh, what impressed me a lot about this paper is the fact that you would actually think about it and think critically about the paper because it, I think for the majority of us, we looked at it and, and looked at it and thought, this is pretty unassailable data. And uh, what motivated you or how did you even come up with the idea to challenge something like this? Yeah, so, yeah, the answer to your first question is yes. Every, t- every time I look at a paper, that's um, not, say, a, a really good randomized trial, my first thought is just how is this not selection bias? Uh, you know, just for example, there was a, um, a CMAJ paper recently looking at physician, age, uh, sorry, surgeon age and outcomes. Um, that's now sort of making the rounds and has a lot of buzz. 
Um, I'm still going through it myself, so I haven't had a chance to dissect it. But again, I, I look at the at the conclusion and say, okay, you know, uh, you know, experienced older surgeons may have fewer complications. Uh, but then my next question is like, how how does not selection bias not come into this? Like, what's what exactly is the practice style of some of these older surgeons that you can't really dissect out through a lot of the risk adjustment methodologies that they've uh, they've applied. And and as someone who's done a lot of this type of health services research, you know, I, I understand the limits and I, I do, uh, you know, I have a, uh, you know, the, the familiar uh, experts understanding that um, you really can't do the things that you want to do, which is pretend you've done a, a really high-quality, well-designed, randomized trial using just these observational data. Um, so, yes, that's uh, that's definitely my my first thought whenever I read any uh, any study. And the um, the idea of trying to use population-based uh, research as approaches to get around selection bias has been, uh, you know, you know, a theme that's gone throughout my research career. Whenever whenever I try and assess. Um, the effect of any type of health intervention uh, without doing randomized trials, which are extraordinarily difficult to do in, in surgery, as we all know. Um, my, my thinking is always, well, how can we study the entire population and try and use the entire population to figure out uh, what the impact of this intervention might be? So that's why we looked at that in particular uh, for surgical safety checklists. Yeah, I think that's an important uh, lesson for trainees in particular in that, you know, we, we spend a lot of times learning what the guidelines say, you know, for that little quiz that we have at the end of residency. But it's I think it's important to still remember that uh, the evidence definitely might not be perfect and, and to keep those considerations in mind. I wanted to shift gears a little bit to one of my other favorite papers of yours, which is the paper that you did, uh, I think, in last year, which was looking at the impact of the word cancer on people's assessments of risk in thyroid nodules. Uh, can you talk about that paper for those people who haven't read it and what you found? Yeah, yeah. And this is actually one of my favorite studies too. And, um, you know, there's a bit of a, a poignant and uh, somewhat sad story, which is that I tried to do this the first time about 10 years ago in a really small study among men with prostate cancer. And we um, and what we did in that study is we just gave these hypothetical scenarios to men, like, you know, 60, 70-year-old men, and say, uh, what would you do if, and we gave them a scenario where you had this thing, and it's, you know, it was one centimeter, and it was in the prostate gland, um, and you could do one of two approaches. You could either leave it alone, in which case you'd be totally fine, um, or you could do the surgery, uh, in which case there's a 50% chance that you would have impotence or a urinary incontinence, um, and you would still be fine. So we basically gave the scenario of a, a localized uh, prostate cancer, and um, we said, uh, "What which which approach would would you most want to uh, take?" And when when we called that uh, prostatopathy, which was the word we used back then for that study, um, nobody wanted surgery, um, as, as you might imagine, because the scenario we gave them suggested that surgery was all harm and no benefit. And if you called it cancer, virtually every man who did this uh, study uh, said they would have surgery, like 90, 95%. And it was a very small sample size, and the, 
the conference interval was wide and I we sent this to JAMA as a research letter and it went through like multiple rounds of peer reviews and it you know I thought it was like a done deal uh, and at the very end I think they just <laughs> they got cold feet and um uh, it's one of those like great ideas that just never got published and uh I never um I never just sort of had the wherewithal to pick it up and uh and run with it and, until I had this uh uh, resident in ENT who's really interested in doing a, a project, and, and we just redid the same thing with thyroid cancer, and and did the same scenarios. You you do a um, hypothetical survey among people uh, with this thing, uh, this thyroid thing, and if you call it thyroid cancer, uh, everybody will will want to have it removed, and if you call it a thyroid nodule, uh, then um, very few people will want to have it removed. And the bottom line is. This tells me, and I think should tell all of us, that the words we use, and like just basic words, are highly influential in uh, guiding how people make decisions about surgery or other treatments, especially decisions that we think are sometimes not rational or counterintuitive, uh, especially for very low-risk neoplasms where all the guidelines would suggest um, conservative therapy. Prostate's a better example of that actually than thyroid because um, there still isn't that much uh, support yet for uh, you know a, a watchful waiting approach to um, low risk uh, uh, but poten- potentially malignant thyroid nodules. But for prostate cancer, for um, uh, you know localized small prostate cancers in men, uh, there's uh, a lot of evidence that overall the best approach would be an active surveillance or watchful waiting approach. And what what you see in practice is that men, uh, even with localized prostate cancer, overwhelmingly elect to have surgery. And I have to think it's because we're calling it cancer. And people just cannot abide by the fact that they have something in their body called a cancer and not have it removed. It just culturally, it just seems like such a counterintuitive concept that it's very difficult to provide a guideline concordant care. Uh, when it really goes against every emotional impulse that a that a person has when they're diagnosed with cancer, that's such an important study, Dave. And you know, it speaks even I think more broadly to just how we talk to patients in general. You know, as an HPB surgeon, of course, you know, even how you talk to them about dying um, is so heterogeneous from from partner to partner, and and some do it you know beautifully, and some do it less less well. Um, and the the words you're right. The selection of the words we use is is so so very important and really frames not only how the patient you know views their their scenario, but how how they view their future as well. Whether it's up front like you're describing and in prostate and, and thyroid lesions, or whether it's at the back end, you're dying of a pancreas cancer that's metastatic. Like yeah. it's such an important idea. I think a, a word that we should think a lot more about that we use all the time is is the word leak. Uh, when people yeah. talk to patients about um, complications, yeah. they'll often use, uh, you know, surgeons will, will talk about a leak. Right. And the word leak, like for the average person, like a, a leak sounds almost cute. Like it, yeah. it doesn't, yeah. you know, when, <laughs> like what a leak means to you and me. Is, yeah. Like, <laughs> totally. but, and, and the consequences and, uh, you know, reoperations and stomas and drains and prolonged course, but it's like, it, the word leak just does not do justice to uh, um, 
to to the nature of that complication. So, and that's just an example of of words and how um, influential uh, they can be. So, I I think we we really have to be aware um, in in all the work that we do about the the words that we that we use and and like you say, how we talk to patients because yeah. there's a lot of variation and and there's there's really good techniques that we can pick up to uh, to communicate better. I mean, you know, in particular, and you know, from the from the view of a trainee, you, you're going through your residency and you're trying to understand didactically and then technically all this all this information. But I think we all run across, you know, once a year, twice a year, maybe more if we're very lucky. But uh, a particular um, faculty surgeon in clinic that you see connects with patients over and over and over again in a way that that is awe-inspiring, maybe too strong, but really, really impressive. And I think. All of us should probably, you know, as we move through that process, sort of stop and try and reflect on it for exactly the reasons you're you're saying, because some people do do it so well. Although it's a bit tangential, uh, maybe Dave, there's so many challenges in in, in performing high quality research in, in surgery, and you've you've touched on them in the first uh, half hour here uh, a little bit, but. You know, from at least from our point of view, if we look around, um, you know, in Calgary, some of us that that try and uh, grind along and do do research, you know, there's there's obviously less funding mechanisms. It's harder to get that money to support your study. There seems to be new new barriers really every month, whether it comes from the university side of things on the on the ethics side, or now you know requiring trial insurance, or whether it's uh, really, our provincial and, and you know, I don't say this in a negative way necessarily, but our provincial government's really focused on clinical care as opposed to the academic side of things. Um, maybe less of a drive in the trainees to participate in research for a whole host of different reasons. Um, it just seems like there's more and more challenges all the time. So I was I was curious on your view of what are those challenges in general, and then and then maybe some advice in terms of how we can overcome them, or or what do you think of all that? Yeah, I. I have to agree. It's 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 so hard uh, to do research and to practice as uh, an academic in surgery, and you know just when you think it can't get harder, it it gets even harder. And you know I have a I have a huge admiration for for those of us who still actually have um, active labs, like do real uh, wet lab scientific research yeah. and get CIHR funding and yeah. um, and keep keep that going when it's it's so. Expensive and competitive, and uh, time-consuming. That it's you know I I have so much admiration for the people uh, who are still able to do it. So you know I think one of the biggest barriers uh, to developing you know academic faculty in Canada uh, still is is the way that we work in our um, in our universities, and we. We don't work the same way as a lot of American universities, for example, that can develop academic faculty who they basically hire new people who are well-trained, uh, pay them a salary, uh, tell them, okay, you've got these clinical responsibilities, but but this is your research job, and these are your research days, and this is what we're paying you for, and you're going to do this for three years, and we'll review you every year, and then uh, eventually you're... Um, your promotion and your tenure will be uh, based on how you perform in all these different dimensions. And in Canada, it's it's very difficult because of the way clinical revenues come in and uh, because of the way hospitals are funded and because of the way our academic departments work. It's very hard for, for us to do that. We can we can try and put some plans together to protect, protect uh 
young uh, academic faculty and try and get them to sit and think and write and collaborate. But it's very hard to keep the drive uh, to do clinical work at bay and to really put the um, the rewards from from clinical work into some uh, you know prioritization so that you're not um, so pressured to do uh, clinical work to um, to maintain your your income and to contribute to uh, whatever you know group arrangement you have uh, in in your hospital or university which which varies a lot obviously from province to province and university to university so I think the the opportunity the ability to support people to be disciplined uh, is is very difficult for us in Canada, and I, I think that's a huge problem. Um, and then, and then the rest of them, you could you could make the list. It's um, it's so competitive. You know, CIHR funding rates uh, are you know between ten and fifteen percent. So, yeah, you have to you have to get rejected a lot of times at CIHR before you ever get um, get a grant funded. Uh, and to do high quality research takes time, takes money. Uh, and um, takes uh, takes training and collaboration, and uh, you know put into all the other um, you know competing uh, r- things that people need to do. It's it's just so hard. <laughs> I know I keep keep saying that over and over, but um, I I really sympathize with our young faculty now trying to uh, you know starting out on their careers and and trying to develop uh, their own niche in research and. Uh, you know, I, I do what I can to support them, but I have so much sympathy for what they're dealing with because I recognize how difficult it is for them as well. Dr. Ball had <laughs> talked about uh, not only you're doing this really tough work with research, but you're also involved in administration, and particularly you've looked a lot at trying to improve the whole Canadian healthcare system, particularly with wait times. Um, do you what do you think are the big things that we should be working on as a country? Uh, I know it's a bit hard right now with uh, with COVID sort of looming on, on our minds, but if we back ourselves up two months and, and kind of think globally about the Canadian healthcare system and the issues that we're facing, what are your thoughts about um, how we could improve uh, access to care and, and overall our system? Right. So if I if I was to back up a couple of months, I would say, What's the biggest threat to Canadian Medicare? Like, what's if there's one thing that's going to topple the system and uh, create the you know have the Supreme Court of Canada just say this is no longer um, uh, consistent with our charter rights? It would have been access and wait times uh, for sure. Of all of all the concerns that people have, that's the one that hits a nerve and gets a lot of attention. And uh, and it's something I've been thinking about uh, for for a while. Uh, in, in international surveys, Canada performs, you know, not great on um, on the on health system performance. So, um, you know, the Commonwealth does the survey every couple of years, and uh, it was a real wake up call where the um, the I think the 2017 one showed that Canada was you know, close to the bottom in international um, rankings. And and the reason, the biggest reason that we perform poorly is access and wait times. And these are things like wait times for elective surgery, uh, you know, ability to get a primary care appointment within a day, uh, like like waiting for a specialist for more than a few months. And these, these are huge challenges. Um, you know, one thing I will say, because people sometimes uh, lose sight of this fact, is that 
no nobody loves their health system in any country. Like if if you look at that Commonwealth survey about how people rank their health system uh, internationally, like the country that did the best in the 2017 survey was Germany. Um, and uh, and they asked questions like, you know, are you mostly satisfied or are there major problems or do you have to destroy the whole health system and rebuild it from scratch? And in Germany, which was the best, 60% of people thought it was largely okay, um, uh, that it didn't have to be uh, knocked down and rebuilt or did not require sort of major, major changes. Um, so 40% of people in the best country, like in the country where people thought the health system was the best by international comparisons, 40% still had major problems with it. So I think the notion that there is a solution to the problems uh, of providing uh, health care in a way that's satisfying to, to populations in Western countries, like that, that's not... Uh, that's never going to be something that we're able to achieve just because of the way that healthcare is now, that it's, it's very expensive and uh, people's expectations of care is very high and they want access to it. Um, and it's like the, um, the classic line in business is a uh, good, cheap, fast pick two. Uh, it's, it, it's exactly the same in healthcare. Like, you know, you can have in Canada, I like to think we have, uh, you know, good and uh, maybe cheap, uh, but, but not fast. Um, and you can have, um, you know, fast and good. If you, you can argue that maybe the United States offers very good healthcare and very accessible healthcare, but it's not cheap. So, you know, something has to give just because uh, people expect a very high standard of care. And, and that has become extraordinarily expensive. So, you know, per capita health expenditures um, in um, Canada are around, uh, you know, they vary province to province, but, you know, like say six $6,000 per, per year per capita. Um, you know, nobody really wants to spend that much money if you look at median household incomes and what that represents. Uh, you know, whether people pay for care out of pocket or insurance premiums or taxation. Nope. Nobody wants to shell out those dollars and think that that's going for their health care. So you have this basically unsolvable conundrum. So that's just my, my little um, sideways uh, diatribe on, on the fact that well, healthcare systems can't be fixed. They just have to be managed. So um, Canada, the, the, uh, the biggest uh, crisis point to me has been the issue of wait times and access, especially in surgery. I think that's, that's our challenge. And um, the, uh, the approach that I've become most interested in uh, recently um, has been looking at uh, innovative ways to manage referrals to surgeons uh, and uh, innovative ways of how surgeons work together to provide care. And the, the best model uh, that I can find in the literature, and, and it's one that we're studying now uh, in Ontario using administrative data, is what are called single-entry models. Um, so single-entry models, everyone's familiar with, uh, you know, if you go to most Tim Hortons or banks or whatever, you just join a single line in the beginning, and then at the very end, you just get assigned to the next available uh, person who can who can, you know, provide you a service. And there's a lot of literature on single-entry models in healthcare, so essentially patients wouldn't, your family doctor wouldn't have to figure out who, uh, which, which surgeon to send you to, who might have the shortest wait time, who they think is the best, who, you know, whatever, whatever goes into the minds of referring physicians when they try to find a surgeon to look after a patient, but that you would have a common queue and then uh, the patients would just be assigned to the next available 
provider. So if, um, you know, in, uh, you know, in Ontario, uh, well, <laughs> down the street, I know there's a, there's a great hernia surgeon in, in Toronto um, who has a wait list or, you know, this is before this whole COVID uh, thing started, uh, somewhere like, you know, 12 months or 18 months to see him uh, for an inguinal hernia. Um, and, you know, other hernia, other hernia surgeons had a wait list of just a couple of weeks. And, you know, primary care doctors have, have no idea about who's, you know, who's got the shortest list. Like, we don't really publicize all this information. But if there was a common list for hernia surgery, and, you know, patients would just enter this common list and just get um, uh, partitioned out to the next available provider, all of a sudden, what you've done is you've sort of harmonized that wait list and, and gotten it down to kind of the lowest uh, median weight that you could have, because you're you're, you're pooling all the resources together and just using a common queue. So the, the concept of uh, a single entry model, and, and people sometimes call this uh, central intake or uh, centralized triage models, but the, the, the notion of having a common queue and then uh, assigning patients to the next available provider can go a really long way in harmonizing wait times and shortening wait times for most people. Um, the, other, uh, the other approach that I think uh, helps quite a bit as well is establishing team-based models of care. Uh, so right now, uh, a lot of surgeons, for most of what we do, still work as essentially uh, solo providers, and we kind of run our own practices, and we get referrals of patients, and we evaluate them and uh, decide whether or not they should have surgery, and then generally we do the surgery ourselves. Um, you know, sometimes there's a bit of group uh, uh, input uh, through tumor boards, for example, and um, uh, you know, for some cancer sites, but by and large, uh, surgeons manage patients on their own. Um, the alternative is to have um, team-based or group models of care where care of patients is shared between surgeons in a program. So say at a hospital, you have uh, three or four surgeons who work together to co-manage patients. Um, the, the way that can also help wait times is once a patient enters into your program, they, uh, they also just get assigned to the next available surgeon. So if you happen to see a patient uh, in your um, uh, in your common program, but you don't have OR time for like two months, and one of your partners has OR time in two weeks, then that patient could actually go and have surgeon primarily have surgery primarily by your partner instead of by you, and and still get the the quickest next available appointment. Um, so that that model is a little bit different from the way that most surgeons uh, work, and there's um, you know a lot of reluctance to to embrace different types of models. But, uh, you know, I think you could do a lot to improve the system dynamics and improve access to care and, and probably also improve the work lives of surgeons by uh, embracing some of these innovative models of care a little bit more than we have in the past. You know, it's, it's interesting, Dave. I think you're, you're, you're dead on as usual with that. We just recently had the Edmonton Group come down to Calgary and give grand rounds about their program up there. They call it an access program, but effectively that's exactly what you've described as what they've done. And it was interesting to hear, you know, in terms of adoption um, and sort of a negative view of it among some surgeons up front and how that, um, you know, it was the minority, but that, that relatively vocal group up front had all come onto the program at the at the back end because they they saw it be so successful, not only for patients but also for the surgeons themselves. They talked about reducing a lot of the administrative stresses that that they individually as well as their offices had to deal with, and 
it was a remarkable presentation, which we're trying to pursue it in Calgary here. But, you know, as you say, there's a lot of skeptics, in particular, maybe surgeons that have been around for a long time and have deep relationships with referring physicians. Um, you know, probably there are, there'll be the late adopters, but <clears throat> the data was, was very clear. It was significantly beneficial to uh, Northern Albertan patients and, and really uh, surgeons at the end of the day, too. Yeah. Well, you know, change is, is hard and, um, and painful. And, you know, the, but I will say, I think you're, you're dead on that um, once, once people implement these types of programs, they never go back. And uh, wherever exactly. they're, like, there's, there's so little back. And, you know, a great example, and I'll, I'll go back to my dad, uh, the, um, uh, the obstetrician who, uh, you know, is obviously retired. Um, but he spent his whole career until the very end of his career, looking after his own patients. Mm-hmm. And he'd, um, you know, like at three in the morning, he would, you know, on a Thursday, you know, he, not on call, but um, he'd have to, uh, you know, if one of his patients was in labor, he'd drive down to like the Wellesley Hospital in downtown Toronto and go and, you know, deal with a woman who was laboring and deliver her baby or section or whatever. And, you know, that, that people now would look at that as craziness. Like any... No yeah, obstetrician. True. <laughs> like, and, and here, um, you know, women, because people often say that, oh, no, a patient won't tolerate this. Like, a, once you have that relationship formed with a surgeon or a provider, then that's inviolate and in that there's no way that patient will ever allow anyone else or have confidence in any other provider. But, you know, just look at obstetrics, and, and there's so many other examples, but, you know, here you have, um, you know, pregnant women who see their obstetrician, you know, periodically, you know, every week towards the end of their pregnancy, you know, developing strong relationships, I'm sure, with their obstetricians, and then when uh, push comes to shove and you're in labor, uh, you know, it's, you know, let's meet Dr. Smith, and, uh, you know, whether you have a section or, you know, forceps or whatever the obstetric uh, decision-making is, you basically trust the person who's there and it's not the person you had a relationship with before, but it's the best person who's skilled and inspires confidence and and they can look after you in the moment. So, you know, to me, there's, there's, there's no reason why it's not possible. And, you know, I think surgeons often will do things and value them, particularly when it, when it helps them as well. And I think as surgeons realize how much improves their work lives as surgeons, and, you know, you mentioned um, just the stress of managing a practice and patients and wait times, like our lives are almost all workarounds for, for system problems, yes, right? Totally. Like, exactly. how do you do this? And it's, it's, it's one workaround after another, and it's all just done to preserve this notion that we own the patient. It's our patient, and we have to figure out with the resources that are given to me like how am I going to get this? Like how am I going to get this person done? I've got these four other people. And, but if you if you shift to a system perspective and say you know the patient doesn't necessarily belong to you, um, it's a patient of the system. And how can you construct a system to provide patient centered care? Uh, you know then you know you you open a whole new universe of uh, of creative uh, ideas. Well, if uh, COVID has done one good thing, it's shown us that uh, we have to probably get uh, a bit more innovative and and maybe have to embrace change. Uh, You know, people are doing telemedicine consults, for example, and that's not something uh, we thought was ever going to take off in in the way that it has. Um, But talking about wait times, how how are we going to address this backlog of cases 
um, after we have elective surgery turned back on, uh, once you know what you know whether COVID is going to go away or not is it remains to be seen. But once uh, the elective surgeries sort of start taking off again, what are we going to do about this massive backlog? And what are your thoughts about how to best address this? Yeah. Well, I mean, it probably won't surprise you that um, I think, um, you know, team-based care and the single entry models are, are a big part of how we're going to address this problem. You know, my personal feeling, and, you know, n- none of us know what's going to happen, but I um, I don't see this uh, as a uh, as a problem that we're going to get beyond in a f- couple months' time and then say, okay, how are we going to dig ourselves out of this backlog? Let's well, you know, let's operate Saturday and Sunday and every night till 10 p.m. just to get through all this uh, backlog of elective surgery that's accumulated now that we're over the hump. You know, I think probably we're going to be uh, managing or, you know, coping in some way with uh, COVID uh, for for many months and possibly a year or more. Uh, so I don't see us as getting, you know, back up to 100% of capacity, let alone, you know, 150%. So I think we're going to be stuck with a, um, what's probably an ethical problem uh, for the foreseeable future, which is how do you provide care to people with limited resources, um, including uh, sort of care that kind of falls between the cracks. Like we might be able to construct a system that gets all the uh, patients with breast cancer and colon cancer and hepatobiliary cancers. um, But, you know, does is nobody going to have a, a knee replacement for the next year and a half, or, or a hernia repair, or a or a cholecystectomy? You know, we have to figure out a way to do this fairly, uh, ethically and equitably to patients, and and also to surgeons. Um, you know, if you're, uh, you know, a benign general a general surgeon who does benign uh, surgery like hernias and gallbladders, um, you know, there's a scenario where you might not operate for months. Uh, you know, what does it mean to be a surgeon who doesn't do an operation for six months or nine months? Um, so I think we need a way to treat patients ethically in patient-centered manner. And I think we need a way to keep surgeons working, uh, number one, because it's it, it has to be fair to surgeons. And number two is, you know, the the catastrophe, if you if you force surgeons to to basically stop working for a long period of time, you may not get them back. You know, I'm not sure what happens to people's skills after a prolonged period of time. Um, it's, it's not ideal for anybody. So what I view as a very effective and ethical and fair system is to say, you know, look at what's, what do we need to do and what are the resources we have and what's the most fair and ethical way uh, to, to do it. So, um, and again, I, I'll, you're not going to be surprised, but I think working together in teams uh, and sharing resources equally. So instead of just who's got the most patients on a list, uh, let's just let let everyone get uh, equal access to resources. So all the surgeons have a chance to keep their skills up and get access to uh, resources for patient care, because I think that's important for surgeons. And then for patients, I think we need to work off common lists within our groups. Like if you're in a hospital with a few partners, I think we all need to put our patient list together and say, okay, let's prioritize them based on urgency and try and get the um, urgent ones first uh, through the list, but also make lists for everything so that we don't ignore some of the benign conditions that still cause a lot of uh, suffering and uh, chronic problems for people. So, 
you know, I, I think the, the same types of strategies that would be good for Canadian healthcare in normal times are, are even more important in, uh, in these crazy crisis times. That's well said, Dave. One of the passions you and I share for sure, and I think lots of us share across the country, to be honest, and and uh, I just wanted to, to touch on it before we close, is um, especially, you know, our, our concerns um, around implantable medical devices, and that's a broad description, a broad term, but, you know, obviously in the general surgery world, for example, we would talk about um, some of the many types of mesh that have been, say, recalled for incisional hernia repairs. As you know, there's, in fact, the largest class action lawsuit in America right now surrounds a, a dual-layer mesh in Canada. It's, it's ramping up. We tend to, at least from, from my point of view, drop these implantable devices into patients in what seems like um, a very rapid and sometimes unsafe manner. Uh, based on data and opinions from industry. Um, and I don't guess the fault of the surgeon necessarily, but it certainly is a concern. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, this is such a fascinating area, and I've done a lot of work um, with uh, device regulation uh, in uh, in Canada and also, uh, you know, read a lot about how this works internationally. And, you know, I think it was fascinating to me because I knew so little about it before. And I can guarantee you that most surgeons really don't understand the process by which these implantable devices are evaluated, regulated, and approved. Um, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, in Canada, it's Health Canada. That's the agency that regulates and uh, provides licenses right. for health products. In the United States, it's the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And, you know, every country has its own process. And the legislation uh, used by Health Canada as well uh, by the FDA basically says that they approve health products if they're safe and effective. So those, those are the criteria. Um, now, if, if what they're evaluating is a new drug, um, to determine that that new drug is safe and effective, they've decided, uh, based on this you know, evolving consensus, that that requires large clinical trials. Uh, you know, and for most drugs, it's, uh, you know, there are thousands of patients in placebo-controlled studies. Uh, they're obviously funded by pharma because there's, a, at the end of this, is a company that stands to get a lot of return on investment. Um, but because of that, you can actually get fairly well-designed uh, clinical trials that actually can tell you uh, that a drug is effective and largely safe. Although even with these, you know, big expensive clinical trials that that the pharmaceutical industry does, people still criticize them because, well, you know, follow-up was only one year. Like, we don't know what happened after two years or three years or something. But, but at least they have these big clinical trials. So the amazing thing is for implantable devices, there's really no requirement for clinical trial. And you, at first, you may think about that and say, well, that's crazy. Like, how can you um, approve new implantable devices uh, without doing, you know, randomized trials or controlled trials in, in people that are large enough and well-designed enough and long enough with follow-up to figure out if they're safe and effective. And uh, as it turns out, when you dig deeper into it, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult uh, to do that. And I would say impossible, um, uh, mostly because of how expensive it is to uh, do these types of studies and the fact that the manufacturers of devices could never ever recover the uh, the costs of development if they had to actually uh, pay 
to do clinical trials. So uh, to put this in perspective, you know, drug studies to get these things approved by the FDA are, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, by and large. And, and people argue whether it actually costs that much and where the money goes to. But it's it, it costs at least tens of millions of dollars, probably hundreds of millions of dollars per product to get it on the market with clinical trials. And um, so you, you can do that with drugs because, uh, you know, you get, um, you know, market exclusivity and patents and you get 18 years or 21 years or whatever it is to, to sell a, a drug at a high price with uh, essentially a monopoly market. Um, and, but you don't have that with, uh, with devices because they're, um, they're not patented molecules and different manufacturers can provide similar products. The, um, the intellectual property doesn't stick in the same way that it does for drugs. And, and the products don't stay in the marketplace that long. So you can't actually, you know, develop a, say, a piece of mesh, patent it, um, you know, prevent any of your competitors for creating a similar type of mesh and then market it at retail prices for 20 years. Um, you know, the, the meshes change every few years. So the whole business model just makes it unaffordable uh, to do clinical trials. And the other problem is that the sheer number of devices. So, you know, people may not realize this, but new drugs, there's every year, there's like a handful of new drugs that are approved by Health Canada or the FDA. It's like maybe a couple dozen, um, but, you know, less less than 50 for sure every year. Whereas for, um, you know, medical devices and implantable health products, it's thousands. Like uh, there's there's probably many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of uh, medical devices that have licenses that are being marketed, um, and it would just be an overwhelming, uh, you know, um, uh, task to to do the same type of regulation that people do with drugs. So the problem with devices is we have exactly the same language from the regulators that we we. Ha- that they use for drugs uh, with devices. So they'll say that, yes, this mesh is approved because we've determined it's safe and effective. But but if determining something is safe and effective actually means doing clinical trials with long-term follow-up, they actually haven't done that. Like all they've done is they've gone through what's largely an engineering process or they've done enough due diligence to show that it's not too different from other types of meshes. Um, and that's really the evidence that gets the mesh on the market. And and I think surgeons don't understand this, that the process by which these implantable medical products get to market don't necessarily rule out the fact that there may be problems. There may be long-term problems. There may be short-term problems. And and you can't foresee all these problems. And, you know, I don't blame the manufacturers um, because, you know, I, I do see this as a very... Uh, you know, it's a very complicated problem. But one thing we need to do is is change our mindset about how we think about all of these products and implantable devices and sort of think of them a little bit more as experimental things rather than approved known quantities. And I think if we if we thought a little bit more of them as always somewhat experimental, I think we'd be much less likely to use the latest thing. Like, I think we'd be much more likely to use yeah. the mesh that we used 10 years ago and 15 years ago that seemed to be pretty good. Um, and, um, but, but once you start to change your mindset, uh, and, uh, and you try, try and reduce your susceptibility to the, the latest and greatest, which is such a normal human emotion, uh, I, I think it would all, um, make us all better off. 
You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again. Thank you.